1997. Here's team member Crystal Capron. I think that RV Technologies' mission is to not only build lasting relationships with our customers, but also earn the trust of our customers. Loyalty, respect, and trust are the first three words that pop into my head when I think of RV Technologies. Not only do they strive to satisfy their customers, but also their employees. I think a big part of what sets RV Tech aside from the competition is that we are not just focused on computer networking and technology. We get involved in the community as much as we can. From supporting the Vermont Chamber to the Mountaineers baseball team, RB Technologies cares not only about the customers, but about the community. The team at RB Technologies knows it's all about building lasting relationships. Call 223-4448 or online at rbtechvt.com. When you think of business technology and communications, think of RB Technologies. It's time to get the story behind the story. Interviews with newsmakers, newsbreakers, and your phone calls. Radio Vermont presents The Mark Johnson Show. Thank you, Jim Connie. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Thanks for tuning in. It's Friday. Thanks for spending part of your morning with us. Coming up on the program in just a moment here, we're going to be chatting with Steve Jeffrey, the outgoing executive director of the Vermont League of Cities and Towns. We'll begin hour number two. We'll head down to Washington, D.C. We'll be joined by our White House crew. We are generally joined on Fridays by Victoria Jones. We would love to hear from you this morning on the program. You can reach us anytime at 244-1777. That's our local number in central Vermont. And you can also reach us on our toll-free lines at 877-291-8255. Uh, and again, we'd love to have you join us throughout any time. Any sort of thoughts, comments you want to share with us, we do welcome those on the program. Let's give a nice one, Radio Vermont. Welcome this morning to Steve Jeffrey. Steve, as I mentioned, is the outgoing executive director of the Vermont League of Cities and Towns. He'll be uh, stepping down from that job coming up uh, early next month. 33 years as executive director. Pretty long time. Yeah, it's been a great, uh, great run. I get to work with a wonderful bunch of people, both in our office and serving local officials. It's um, really, I, I couldn't have um, come up with a better career plan than, than what it's turned out. Um, it's been beautiful. It's uh, Vermont's a wonderful place to do this. Um, it's b- belief in local control and local governments and direct democracy. Volunteerism has just been phenomenal and I've really appreciated the opportunity to do this. Every person was perfect out there to be doing uh, Well, we, we no, nobody's perfect, um, but uh, I I'll think, say. you know, given the fact that uh, we've got so many people that are participating in, in local government around here and, and really the backbone of, uh, of local government that the fact that it doesn't happen more frequently, I think, is just a real, real good sense of what society and community in Vermont means. What is the Vermont League of Cities and Towns? Well, it's a it's an organization that uh, was created in 1967 by a couple of actual uh, actually uh, some UVM professors, um, Andrew Newquest and Ralph Haugen, who had seen that there are these other things are across the country, and it's kind of a chamber of commerce of of uh, municipal governments. Um, they realized that there's a couple of things that they could do. One is that they needed a stronger um, voice, a uh, common voice in 
in Montpelier to talk to the legislature, to talk to the administration, to represent the interests of local government as much as there is a common interest. Yeah, um, I'm just writing down common interest <laughs> question mark. Yeah. Uh, secondly, is that we, as we mentioned, we are very dependent upon a lot of uh, volunteers to do and to guide our municipalities going forward. Um, they come into the jobs um, on town meeting day uh, with uh, maybe limited uh, training. Uh, so we do provide training. Uh, a lot of publications are up on our website, uh, vlct.org. Uh, we've got a how to be a select board member, how to be a town clerk, all of those uh, publications. And again, we provide tremendous amounts of um, advice and technical assistance to those municipalities. We've got three attorneys on staff that um, are on the phones all the time with municipal uh, people, planning commissioners, zoning boards, um, select boards, to talk about what their roles and responsibilities are. And lastly is to really look at the opportunities for saving money, to being able to look at uh, jointly purchasing a lot of uh, ty different types of things. We've had some successes over the, over the past 30 years. We've had some failures. But uh, again, I think that that's really been the opportunity that we've looked at as kind of a three-legged stool of, uh, of service to, uh, to local government. What would you describe as being the common interests that municipalities have? Well, I think number one is the property tax. Um, it's uh, up until very recently been basically our sole source of revenue for both our municipal governments and for our schools. Um, the fact that um, uh, stuff happens in Washington, D.C. and in um, Montpelier that um, it's kind of floats down or sinks down. Um, so as to be able to preserve the authority to make decisions at the local level, to guide where your community wants to go as opposed to what other people are saying you should do. And also, and that gets to issues such as unfunded mandates. It gets the issues of um, usurping a local authority, taking that away and having that decision made in, in Montpelier or in Washington. Um, and different people have different perspectives on that. Um, we need to make sure that uh, as an organization that we are looking out for that ability to make the decisions at the local level and also to be able to provide them with the resources to provide the services and uh, kinds of things that people want out of their local governments. How do you represent, though, towns that are as diverse as Island Pond and Burlington? Well, that's a good question, Mark. And, you know, <clears throat> we go through a very arduous um, process of coming up with our legislative policies. Every year we begin um, shortly after the legislature adjourns and put together some policy committees. We've got four policy committees that have basically any municipal official that wishes to serve uh, can come in. We talk about transportation issues, public safety issues, environment and quality of life issues and then finances and taxation uh, issues um, and we propose that we go all the way through to October where we have our annual meeting at which every town has one vote to be able to decide what our municipal platform is our legislative platform hmm. um, and it takes a two-thirds vote of those there for the purposes of deciding to support something. So we don't go in with just a, a bare majority. We do feel that we have to go for a supermajority to make sure that there's as much consistency and as much cohesiveness on an issue. We're not going to get everybody on board. Uh, different people who are serving at the local uh, level are there for a lot of different reasons and have a lot of different interests. Um, you know, we think about people that have their own families, they've got their own jobs during the day, and then they serve on a select board. Right. And um, all of those are conflicting in many cases. Right, right. 
well, each community one vote one vote no matter how small or big uh, you are. we didn't we didn't have to found to follow the one person one vote uh, rule yet so um kind of back to the future like what the legislature used to be exactly and our our bylaws have set that up and we've looked at ways of of of, of changing that but um it has not changed and uh, as i say if we were we get about 75 or 80 municipalities that will participate in our um in our annual meeting which is about a quarter or a third of the uh, the membership we'd love to have everyone there um but we do try to get that and then we have a board of directors that's uh, 13 members very wide um, spectrum of interests and size of municipalities that's on there that gives us the guidance uh, from day to day on those issues talking with steve jeffrey the outgoing executive director of the vermont league of cities and towns you can join us at 244-1777 toll free 877-291-8255 you wrote a piece for your your um, publication, uh, stunned by the growth of your operation. It's it, I mean, it, wow. it. I think it really reflects the complexity of local government and what uh, our local government officials are having to deal with uh, relative to what they were dealing with in 1978 when I first started. I was there for four years as the associate director before I took over as the executive director. A lot of the um, services and programs that uh, we've now kind of um, built out uh, were started um, either by other leagues uh, in other states doing similar things or by my predecessor who was very uh, aggressive in trying to put together a service program. Um, so yeah, we do have, as I say, when I came there, I was basically the finance officer. I was the um, information uh, officer. I was um, about everything that uh, taking care of the, the office, my boss before me really uh, did the advocacy issues um, since then we've got an advocacy staff there's um, uh, myself as well as two other people that are up there uh, and dealing with the variety of uh, issues that are fa facing local government it's a it's tough to keep up with those things but as i mentioned we have three uh lawyers we have a uh, a person dealing with water quality issues it's big very big now in lake champlain cleanup and uh, dealing with the waters of the the state um, but also as a big growth is in that joint purchasing area that I spoke about before. We were doing for a number of years, for 30 years, um, all the health insurance for all the municipal employees. Right. Uh, we do unemployment insurance for them. We, we insure most of the municipalities for property and casualty and workers' comp issues so that th things like Irene come along and, uh, you know, that's basically towns are banding together for the purposes of pooling um, their risks and to be able to um, exactly to put them um, to pay for them if they happen and also we're very aggressively involved in loss prevention to make sure that those things don't happen. Your organization went from three staff members you now have 50 annual budget from 161,000 to 5.5 million. Exactly and a lot of that is um, you know we started out the insurance programs basically with having third party administrators do it but which is basically you know Blue Cross or Connecticut General at the time which is now CG or Cigna. Um, but also we had um, 
you know, the, the paying of claims, um, the loss prevention uh, activities. So over the years, we've found that we really do meet our members' needs a lot better by having our own staff do that and not somebody that's on the clock basically doing that stuff. So, you know, we really do feel that when a workers' comp claim comes in from a municipal employee that it's one of the family that's been hurt um, and we try very aggressively to, to make sure that the treatment is right for them and uh, so it's a it's a big investment um, and uh, but I think that our municipalities feel very comfortable with it I think we've got about 95 percent of the municipalities who voluntarily there's no requirement that they uh, in, you know buy the insurance from us or either, for that matter even be a member of uh, the Vermont League of Cities and Towns but they, they do see the benefit in that and you've now got everybody in Vermont just about just about city well, of burlington is out uh, is is not always oh, a member yeah, of the league yeah. absolutely all all 246 cities and towns as well as about 150 other municipal entities out there are members of the league of cities and towns and how what wh when did you get the last one the last one came in finally in 2001 for good um we won't mention any names but uh there was uh, why not <laughs> well okay i'll throw addison under the under the bus there first in the alphabet and last in the membership of the League of Cities and Towns. They actually came in once uh, in 1996 and were in for two or three years and dropped out again. But in 2001, they came in and they've been a member ever since. So. Huh. What was, it, what, what was the, the resistance? I don't know. I... I um uh, you'd have to ask the select boards. I think, uh, you know, again, uh, that feeling of being in charge locally um, stretches over to even being associated with a League of Cities and Towns mm -hmm. uh, at the state level. Um, there is one of us in every other state except Hawaii, and uh, Hawaii doesn't have one because there's only one incorporated city out there. So we're all hoping they get two so we can go out there and become the executive director of the Hawaii League of Cities and go. Towns. At right. least maybe just start it Exactly, up. that's right. Pass yeah. it along. <laughs> somebody else uh what's been the most successful thing the oh, league has boy. done you know i i, I got to differentiate between success of the organization and success of the membership but um the success of the organization i think is the, raising the visibility of local government and the issues facing them i think that's the most important thing and being a check on the interest of of uh, those in Montpelier, and I don't want to throw the city of Montpelier under the bus here, but in the state house and, and the administration, they're they're problem solvers. They want to solve problems, and they see um, those uh, problems best solved by statewide solutions. And I think to be a check on that kind of interest to uh, develop a one size-fits-all um, uh, answer to every problem that comes along, I think is the most important thing that we've done. I think we've saved a lot of uh, taxpayer dollars over time with some of these joint purchasing uh, initiatives that we've gotten. I think that's an important thing. The other thing is, is I th lastly, is to, to raise the abilities of our members to do their jobs and to serve their constituencies, to be able to provide them with the kind of legal assistance, the training that is necessary to, to actually do those jobs today, I think uh, it's again. So those are three things, I guess. I think that the organization has done done well. You know, local government's uh, under constant strain, and I wish I could um, point to some successes um, in making local government stronger than it was in 1978. I, I, 
it's a constant challenge, and and it almost feels like um, most of my career has been rear guard action of trying to defend what was, as opposed to um, really f- uh, explore what it could be. Um, so that's kind of a concern that I have: is that uh, we really don't think so much about who makes decisions and how those decisions are made as much as a decision has to be made. And we've got to do this, and we've got to do it for everybody, and we've got to do it all, and we've got to do it expensively. So, I, you know, that's, that's kind of troubling as far as my career look back is, um, can I say that I've left local government in better shape than it was in 1978? I, I, I think that'd be a real stretch. Is it better than it might have been if I hadn't worked here? That's that's the solace I think I've got is that maybe because of the efforts of me and and the many people that have uh, committed themselves to this organization, whether they be a staff person or leadership, uh, we get great boards of directors over the years. Um, I guess that's my solace there is that uh, maybe it's better than it would have been otherwise. Talking to Steve Jeffrey, the Vermont League of Cities and Towns. Is local control really something in 2015 to continue to be worth pursuing? You know, I, I think it is. And I, and I look back to our experiences in Irene as a reinforcement of that. I, you know, I think of the, 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 the pictures I saw of people in you know, New Orleans um, waiting on their rooftops for the National Guard to come in. And then we switch to Stockbridge or Rochester or Pittsfield and we see town meetings happening instantaneously and people getting together and deciding what needed to be done maybe to, to until the National Guard, until the uh, V-Trans came in. But the fact that we've got that structure there to be able to make those decisions when we need to was 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 really uh, validating as far as my thoughts about local government and i think you know uh, again i i'm i'm i am convinced that uh, there is a, a role for local government here i think we need to continue to look at uh, how we do local government going forward, um, whether we n- need to have a larger scale, whether we should be looking at that, and whether it, it can really perform better as far as serving the needs of, of Vermonters without losing what I think is really important, that the sense of ownership, the sense of obligation, the sense of connection to government, which I think exists at the local level a lot more than it does at the state level or certainly at the national level. We think of ourselves as... Chelseaites or, or or Brunswickians, and uh, uh, as much as we do um, Vermonters or Americans. Two four four seventeen seventy seven is our local number. Toll free eight seven seven two nine one eight two five five. Beside lawmakers, what are the forces working against local control? Uh, special interest groups, um, people who have uh, an end in mind um, that will um, overrule and overrun anything else. So that they have a single interest that they are looking to accomplish, regardless of how it's accomplished, regardless of how they get there. And I think that has... um, really complicated issues um, going forward. And I don't, you know, um, uh, fault anyone for trying to look out for what their best interests might be. But the, the, the inability for us to come together and make the kind of decisions that need to be made, um, it's, not, 
it's not a zero sum game. Unfortunately, there is um, uh, winners and losers um, that we can't meet all of the needs of everyone that uh, that comes forward. Um, you know, government is is limited to uh, what it can do, uh, and um, so I think that the fact that um, we've got people that are very focused and. It has made it more difficult for legislators to say no or to say A instead of B. Tell me, what, give me an example of a special interest. Oh, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus here. Um, give me, yeah, give me an well, issue. Well, I mean, environmental issues certainly a big um, uh, advocacy for individuals with with special needs is is big. Um, uh, you know, those that want uh, public transportation. I mean, it's just everything has become very, very focused and um, uh, they're, they're very energized and they're very um, aggressive in ob- obtaining that end. And, you know, like I said, at, at, at some point we need to really think about the means and we also think about how we balance those demands um, among all of the different interest groups that are out there. 244-1777 is our local number. Toll-free 877-291-8255. A moment of your time for our friends at Green Mountain Access, a great local Internet service provider. Make it our friends at gmavt.net. You can call them toll-free right now at one 321 and on the web at gmavt.net. Take a short break. Come back. Continue our discussion with Steve Jeffrey, the outgoing executive director of the Vermont League of Cities and Towns. Again, you can join us at 244-1777, toll-free 877-291-8255. Back after this. There's a party going on, and you're invited. The 59th Annual Vermont Dairy Festival starts the evening of June 5th and lasts all weekend long. Kitty rides, a parade on Saturday, fair food, and we'll be enjoying the music of Chasing Crazy on the People's Trust Bandstand Sunday afternoon. That's how we do summertime. You can check the full schedule of events at vermontdairyfestival.com. Sponsored by the Franklin County Dairy Promotion Board and the Enosburg Falls Lions Club. Nissan dealers all over New England are scratching their heads. Why are so many people driving to Barry, Vermont to buy new Nissans at Formula Nissan? Jack Castellaneta sounds like you have the answer. Easy. It's our straightforward factory direct pricing. No added markups, no crazy fees, just the best price right up front. We keep it simple and simpler is cheaper. Brand new Nissan straight from the factory. Discounted up to $4,500 right off the MSRP. You've even extended 0% financing for up to 72 months for qualified buyers on select models. That could save you thousands of dollars over conventional financing. And we hope you'll join us on Monday, June 22nd for our Red Cross Blood Drive. We'll be here all day accepting donations. The need is constant and the gratification is instant. Please give blood. Huge savings on every new Nissan, including Altimus. $1,500 bonus cash plus 0% for 72 months. Centras get 0% for 72 months plus $500 bonus cash. We're on the Barry Montpelier Road next to Pizza Hut and at FormulaNissan.com. Let us show you how easy it is to do business here. Hi, this is David Ide, owner of your local Agway store in Montpelier, inviting you to join us this Saturday for our 15th anniversary celebration. In the gardens, Ed Smith will be joining us at 10.30 for book signing, and we'll be doing his radio show live here at the store. There will be great savings all week, like three cubic foot cedar mulch, three bags for $10. Enjoy free McKenzie hot dogs from 11 to 2, and be sure to sign up to win the grill we're cooking them on. It's all this Saturday at Agway, Route 2 in Montpelier. Don't miss it. 
Did you know back in the day, Obishan Hardware didn't publish their phone numbers because they didn't want to take sales staff attention away from their in-store customers to answer the phones? Oh, to have full attention. I should have two dogs instead of one cat. Hey, great news. Present-day Obishan staffs so heartily, there's no amount of phone answering and customer attending to they do not perfectly handle, along with timely price felling. Hear ye. Save on a gallon of liquid pool shock. It's just $248. 50-pound bag of Quick Creek Play Sand on sale for $387. 30% off tomato cages. And a 40-pound bag of composted manure, only $277. Now, Obishan has over 100 stores in the Northeast with a large number of new and remodeled handsome ones set right here in our area of the woods. If you're uphill, coast downhill. If you're downhill, hammer uphill, and you'll find one easily. Open seven days a week, especially for you folks who do gardening on the Sabbath. Hardwarestore.com for info on Obishan. It's good to go to. Hard to spell. It's fun to say. Obishan. Hardware. Breaking news on Radio Vermont is brought to you in part by National Life Group in Montpelier. For over 165 years, at National Life Group, they believe good matters. It's their yardstick. Judge not by how well they do for themselves, but how much good they do for their customers and each other. Not just because it feels good, but because they believe that good is good business. Do good. Be good. Make good. National Life Group. Back to our discussion, we've been talking with Steve Jeffrey, the outgoing executive director of the Vermont League of Cities and Towns. You can join us at 244-1777, toll-free 877-291-8255. Steve, uh, the executive director at the organization for some 33 years. You mentioned one of the common themes that all the communities have, property taxes. So give me your thoughts here. I mean, you've watched... This process, I mean, it, it must be just have been fascinating if you look at a timeline here, the number of different formulas, the number of different ways that lawmakers have tried to sort of slice this egg here and, and always with great difficulty. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think it was the Miller formula when I came. Um, it was Morris Giuliani for a while. It was the foundation formula, and it's been Act 60 and now Act 68. And I don't think there's been a year that uh, since 1997 that some part of that formula wasn't tinkered with with the legislature, which, which makes it difficult for local t clerks and treasurers and listers and people like that to have to deal with this stuff. I mean, it's one thing to go 200 years and do the same job from year to year, but um, throwing in not only the complexity of those uh, programs, but also the constant changing, I think, has really been a concern. Yeah, I look back, and in 1978, I think the taxpayers in Vermont paid $170 million in, in property taxes. We're paying $1.6 billion now um haven't done haven't done very well in protecting that particular portion of uh, my responsibilities um and a lot of that has come through um education it's uh it was about two-thirds of the total uh, populated uh, uh, property taxes that we collected back then is now closer to three quarters. Um, yeah, I was just looking at some charts this morning that um, since that time, 1982, I think I used as the base year, um, 
property taxes for schools, net of the income sensitivity payments and stuff is up 600%. And for municipal municipal property taxes, it's still up pretty substantially, 400%. But... And it, and it really is kind of interesting because those those um, charts kind of show the same uh, kind of growth up until 1997. And there was one year, the first year of Act 60, where they actually uh, the school taxes actually went down substantially. But then since then, the the, the lines have really uh, veered apart, and uh, the property taxes for schools has gone up twice as fast as municipal taxes during that year. You know, liars and statistics, you can use different base years and come up with different uh, uh, different trends, but uh, I think that's a watershed year in Vermont's history as far as looking at that. And that's with the idea of the income sensitivity, which adds some progressivity to the school taxes, no question about that. It does so at rather substantial expense of complexity and confusion, uh, the breaking of the link between taxpayers understanding what the implications of their actions at town meeting has been, but also understanding what their taxes are going for. And it's, you know, it's, it, I think it's fundamental to a tax structure for people to understand their taxes and understand whether it's buying them. And we've really kind of lost that with Act 60. We've gained the progressivity, um, but, but really the property taxes just continue to go up. Was there a better formula before? Well, you know, what happened, it's never the formula. It's never the formula. It is always the portion that is being borne by the property tax. And Vermont continues to be among the leaders as far as the proportion of the property taxes that are supporting education as well as the amount. And, you know, any formula that's taking one-third of the resources um, and trying to even out uh, the burden that's being borne by two-thirds of that, which is the property tax, is not going to do a very good job. And that's always been the problem, I think, with the state's funding of of education is um, not providing the amount of resources other than the property tax to try to equalize the concerns that we have and to provide the the benefits of, of that education to our children. So you think a better way would be have uh, less on the property tax and more on like a, a broad-based tax? Well, or? right, exactly. And, you know, when they looked at both Act 60 and Act 68, they had talked about trying to convert the the at least the residential property tax to an income tax. And the uh, governors in both instances were not uh, interested in pursuing that because... You know, again, for some reason, the income tax is the one that uh, is the third rail of, of the tax structure, and uh, people don't want to deal with that. Meanwhile, these, these property taxes just keep going up and up. And unfortunately, the um, the state's gotten very good at being able to point the finger at school boards or taxpayers, um, even as they are adding to the burden of what's going to be covered by the property tax. And and, you know, again, it's it's easy to spread the blame on that kind of stuff, which is unfortunate. 244-1777 is our local number. Toll-free, 877-291-8255. Let's go to Underhill. Good morning, Doug. How are you today? Good morning. I came up how there were various pressure groups uh, who have influenced uh, policy and, and uh, laws and taxes. I think what we miss is that the taxpayers, the citizens, and the property owners aren't represented in any of these pressure organizations. 
and our causes are not supported by taxes the way almost every other pressure group does. We're putting in our money and our time uh, to uh, make our case as best we can, and uh, depending on what the issue of the moment is, whether it's citizens for property rights or post or the people who have to pay the heaviest burden for school taxes, which are driven mostly by mandates and not by choice. Um, what are the your guest comments on that? I know he's also been part of the uh, affected by mandates, but also affected by the lobbying groups that want uh, sidewalks and and bicycle paths on every on every village street. Comments. Okay. All right. Thank you. It is interesting that in Vermont we don't have a Taxpayers Association or a very effective one. There have been uh, initiatives uh, over the years where that's happened. The other thing, uh, like if we go down to Connecticut, there's a Public Expenditures Council, which is basically a watchdog, a taxpayer's watchdog. I think there's a Massachusetts Taxpayers Association that's very, uh, very effective um, in the conversations that go on. And maybe it is because because we've got town meeting and we've got the ability for people to actually vote on whether their their property taxes should be going up or not, more so than any place else in the country. It's it's the northern tier of uh, Vermont, Maine, and New Hampshire that really have the um, most uh, involvement in, through the town meeting form of government, where town budgets are actually approved by the voters and not by an elected uh, board. It is interesting that um, we go in, we complain about the property taxes all the time, and yet, you know, even when we have, uh, what, 12, 13% of the school budgets go down like we did in 2014, um, people seem to be willing to pay for it. And um, I, I don't know, that's a conundrum I, I, don't, I don't understand. And uh, it is interesting to see that we continue to do that. We've got, you know, um, uh, expanding the role of our schools from, uh, I, I was on bef uh, before kindergarten was mandatory, and I can remember um, debating Governor Cunin about uh, how uh, the costs of uh, kindergarten were going to impact the property tax and the arguments that the kindergarten was going to be the be all and end all and solve all of our problems with kids coming to school. Well, now we're doing pre-K mm -hmm. and now we're doing dual enrollment at the other end. So we're really expanding the responsibilities and all of that's falling to the property tax. Um, and that's a decision that's not being made by local voters. It is being made in Montpelier. So it really is a, a combination of things that are going on here. I don't understand why Vermonters are so tolerant of the property tax burden that we're paying for. Let's go to Lincoln Owen. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Uh, let me start off by saying uh, th thank you, Jeff, very much for your public service. Uh, I think you've made a difference here in Vermont. There's no doubt about that. Um, th the other thing I wanted to talk about, and I hope I can do it briefly, Mark, um, is the state, uh, the fluvial erosion uh, kind of work they're doing or, or areas that they're defining and what's happened in Lincoln. Um, they came to Lincoln seven years ago and did this, and what immediately became apparent was that they drew boundary lines around our rivers and streams that went far beyond the risk of fluvial erosion. Um, and then they recommended that we outlaw any building within that zone, um, any remodeling, any additions put on houses within that zone. 
And we looked at it and we said, yeah, but that zone includes a lot of private property that is not at risk. So we said, we're going to make this a conditional use. We're going to go, if we get an application, we're going to go out and look at the property. And we're going to, just using kind of common sense, say, yeah, this is at risk, or no, this isn't at risk, by fact of just this broad brush that it was, the zone was painted with. Um, and that's worked well in Lincoln, quite frankly. Um, but what I discovered just last night as we were working on our next town plan was that after the ice storm, the state um, withheld 5% um, of the money they would have contributed to the repair of Lincoln public property because we defined this uh, handling of uh, work in the fluvial erosion zone as a conditional use. We defined it as something we would look at we wouldn't just blanketly say to any landowner, irrespective of whether you're at risk or not, you can't do something. Um, and it, it kind of feels like blackmail, quite frankly. And I was wondering if, if uh, Jeffrey had comments on that. Okay. Well, that, we're really grappling uh, both with the Irene stuff, but also uh, <clears throat> you as a member of uh, the Lincoln uh, population are well aware you're kind of a poster child for having to deal with uh, flooding issues. Um, I think it was your library that's been flood-proofed uh, to a rather extensive uh, degree as far as uh, the costs and everything. But, you know, again, I think that our traditional uh, settlement patterns, unfortunately, led us to... Um, uh, to settle and to develop in those uh, floodplains or what now turns out to be a floodplain. And the question is, as you are rightly wrestling with it in uh, Lincoln, about where those lines need to be drawn and how much development we can do uh, within those areas, given that there are uh, FEMA and flood insurance and uh, transportation uh, assistance that back us up. And do we, by redeveloping in those areas that get wiped out or are close to getting wiped out. Um, do we incur the costs uh, going forward and between the cost of the community and the cost of the general population? And that's what we're wrestling with, I think, in every town and also at the state and also at the national level is the, you know, the National Flood Insurance Program is about bankrupt for this. And then we see people rebuilding along the, sh uh, the shores where hurricanes continue to wipe things out. There's a delicate balance there, and I'm glad that you are taking uh, really a d directive at, um, at, at the Lincoln uh, level to be able to try to draw those lines that make sense for your own community. Thank you for your call. 244-1777, toll-free 877-291-8255. Let's go to Middlesex. Charlie, good morning. Good morning, Mark. Um, great conversation. I, I, uh, Jeffrey, you said something to the effect that um, you're sort of uh, puzzled by Vermont property taxpayers not uh, working harder to shift the education burden away from the property tax. But it's my, my understanding that the problem we have in Vermont is that we have a lot of out-of-staters with property uh, here that uh, represents a very significant tax base. And if we were to try to move uh, more of our uh, funding to something like income or sales or any other uh, thing, we we would we would give up that source of revenue. So I think part of it, the big problem we have in Vermont is is unique to the uh, to the nature of the uh, property ownership here. We want to keep on getting those uh, out of state 
uh, tax dollars to help fund education. Isn't isn't that the issue? All right, thank you. I think it was a good point, Charlie. But you know, again, <clears throat> what Act sixty eight did was to bifurcate to split the grand list between the non-residential and the residential property taxpayers and you know until we can come up with a better way of um, having those particularly the vacation homeowners the second homeowners pay their quote share um, that we probably are going to be continue to be dependent upon them to pay that way um, we could shift all of our residential uh, pet taxpayers to an income tax. We could shift uh, a lot of our commercial um, and industrial uh, uh, owners to a, a, an income tax through that, too. There are ways that we can look at, and, and you don't need to uh, solve the whole problem with one solution for all taxpayers. But I think you're right. Um, and, 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 you know, Vermont isn't that outstanding as far as the percentage of our grand lists that are owned by second homes. I think it's about 14 or 15 percent. It's not that out of line with other states, particularly those with shorelines or mountains. Uh, and uh, we do need to come up, I think, with a way to address in particular the burden that's on the residents. And those are the people that are, are you know, voting in town meeting as well as uh, really making our economy run. Is our dependence on property tax a lot bigger than most other states? Yes, yes. And, and you know, it's not unusual to see that in, uh, in the Northeast. Uh, we're an older part of the state, uh, country, and the property tax is historically what we relied on. You move further south and west and you see a lot less rel reliance on the property tax. But, you know, depending on, again, liars and statistics, it depends on how you measure it. Uh, if you measure it on a per capita basis, it's it's a, a we're pretty high, but if you measure it as a percentage of our income, you know where places other places that have high property taxes, New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, also have higher income. So as a percentage of their income, they're not seeing it as much. So it's a bigger burden for us, even with the income sensitivity that we have under X sixty. How did the legislature change in your thirty three years? staring off <laughs> looking for an answer here uh it's a good question i've not had that asked um i don't know if it's it certainly continues to be a citizen uh legislature uh, it certainly i think is reflective of changes that we've seen in our economy there are a lot less farmers uh now than i've seen before um uh, you know, again, I'm not sure. Again, I think a lot of people that are coming into the legislature may be taking uh, routes that are coming through those special interest groups, the non-governmental um, organizations that uh, have causes that they really are care deeply about. Um, so they do come in with a little bit more of a of a narrow mindset as to how to deal with things. You know, any general rule has exceptions, and I'm not, you know. Uh, damning the whole legislature for this, but I think that that, that has happened a lot uh, during the time that I've been here. Mm -hmm. well, how would you describe the dynamic between lobbyists and lawmakers? Has that changed? Well, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think there were probably two dozen of us back when I started in 1982 or 83. Um, now there are about three or four hundred of them that are registered. Some of it because of the lobbying laws have gotten a little more strict and you want to make sure that you are registered. So even if you're thinking about uh, lobbying, you're probably registered to lobby. Whether you're spending any time up there is another thing. But there are an awful lot more uh, people who are up there. I think activism in every 
area um, has uh, heightened. And so people really do feel that if they're not at the table, if they're not in the, the state house, that somehow their cause, their interest is not going to be represented. Would you say the Vermont legislature is less efficient than it used to be or more efficient or the same? Uh, well, I can remember when they were doing the, the uh, changes for Morris Giuliani in 1983 that the House Ways and Means Committee would would throw out a bunch of ideas to their Joint Fiscal Committee um, uh, uh, staff at the time and uh, say, this is what we want to do. And uh, the staff member would say, okay, um, I'll be back to you in a week and a half uh, with a printout that reflects that. Uh, now, the Joint Fiscal Office, the Legislative Council great people that are working there. I'll be back in 20 minutes, you know, with this stuff. So efficiency has kept up almost as fast as the growth and the complexity of the issues that they're dealing with. So I don't think they're any more efficient given what's being demanded of them. I think they are a lot more efficient that they're getting a lot more stuff uh, done, uh, what right or wrong, um, as far as what the legislature is doing. And efficiency... You know, the legislative process was not built to be efficient. It was built to be representative of the interests of the needs of our people. And that continues to be paramount in Vermont. Five-month session makes sense? It makes a lot more sense than a six-month session used to, to in the 1990s. We had really expanded uh, so that we were um, not getting out until the middle of June, um, the end of June. Uh, I think that the fact that they're really out the first weeks of May um, it is, is a good time. I, I can remember when I first started that I actually tried to get away uh, for an April vacation, you know, school vacation, that third right. week in April, um, and <laughs> having to cancel a lot of plans uh, er early on. So I, I think it is a, probably a pretty good uh, a period of time. I think it's tough on the legislators who are taking, you know, particularly if they're trying to do a job um, outside of that, uh, to, to be able to do that and to put the kind of commitment that it takes not only to be a legislator, but also to run for the legislature and also to be able to answer the constituency questions that always are raised. I would imagine that your membership, one of the issues that's just mind-boggling with the change in the time you were there, health insurance. Absolutely. And, you know, to a degree, um, the health exchange, as poorly as it has been uh, rolled out, has um, actually um, it made it a little bit easier uh, for us. There's um, over time there used to be a lot more change, a lot more options available. A lot of the uh, decisions that have been made over time to make it a more equal um, process, um, community rating, uh, those kinds of things, where you can't be charged more uh, depending on whether you've got a pre-existing condition and stuff, um, has made it a, a little bit easier. We've also seen among our workforce as really the population of Vermont is that it's aging and that we are getting sicker and that we and and the technology and the, the remedies that are available weren't available uh, 30 years ago. Yeah. I can remember seeing that their first uh, premiums I think were an astronomical increase to $46 a month um, which would be just you know I don't know it's it's 20 times that now for uh, for a regular person's uh, insurance. So yeah, health insurance definitely. But now we were 
offering uh, health insurance through our pool as a joint purchase, the, head, the exchange has basically done that, or done away with that. So, you know, mm-hmm. towns can go and get the, you know, right off the same worksheet that everybody else. So it is a little bit easier. Um, we'll see whether or not it's going to be less expensive. 244-1777. That's our local number in central Vermont. Toll free 877-291-8255. The, um, yesterday, the Secretary of State, Jim Condo, is talking about setting up an ethics commission, which would look at state officials and also municipal officials, too. This, all these questions of conflict of interest, um, open meeting questions, all this kind of stuff. Is this overdue? Uh, I would not say it's overdue. I think uh, about uh, 15 years ago, we lobbied for the ability of towns to be able to adopt local ethics ordinances, conflict of interest ordinances. The legislature put those in effect. <coughs> Excuse me. And I th- um, last time I looked at our survey, it looked like about two thirds of our members had actually adopted some form of uh, conflict of interest or um, ethics issues. Uh, for ordinances to apply to their uh, public officials as well as their employees. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of penetration as far as being able to adopt those kinds of things. I, I Shortly after that uh, law went into effect, we had an issue come up in Northfield where I live, and um, the select board appointed a, a, adopted the ordinance, appointed an ethics commission, uh, three of us, and I was the chair. We had this one... Uh, issue that a person brought before the commission that actually stimulated the whole adoption process. We dealt with that issue, um, and I haven't been called since, so I'm not sure. I don't know really whether it's a, it's that big of a, a of an issue compared to everything else that we're trying to deal with out there. It is an issue, and there is a, a remedy and a mechanism in place to dealing with them at local level. Mm-hmm. When you say compared to everything else, what do you mean? Well, I mean, you know, I guess uh, the secretary was uh, proposing a half-million-dollar budget uh, for having a committee to look into the potential of ethics uh, problems. Is that the best way we could be spending another half-million dollars of taxpayers' dollars? I'm not sure. You mentioned group purchasing or, or uh, joint purchasing. So big, the biggest success in that was what? That was the property and casualty and the health insurance and the unemployment, the things that didn't work out um, when they first um, deregulated uh, long-distance phone uh, calls. We put together a group purchase for that. Uh, we put it out, and we had one uh, competitor said, yes, here's what we're going to pay or you're going to pay. We said, okay. We awarded it. The next day, all of the other people that bid bid our members at a lower price. Uh, so it really shows that the capitalist society, or the capitalist economy can work, um, that uh, we were unable to, through joint purchasing, be able to compete with the marketplace. And mm-hmm. that's fine. That's good. We also tried to do fax machines when they were first introduced. We tried to do <laughs> TTYs, which are uh, these um, communication uh, devices for uh, people that were deaf. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, all of those things didn't work. Um, we had a money market fund. We actually had an investment pool that we put together. It was in existence for four or five years. So it's, it's great. If the marketplace can take care of those more efficiently and more effectively and more cheaply, there's no point in us being there. We don't want to do that. But it, there has been some success in those kinds of things for the insurance areas. Still stepping over piles of fax machines in your office? <laughs> exactly. Well, it just, yeah, exactly. And the technology changes so fast, it's very difficult. 
Your uh, talk about your successor. What's going to be your successor's biggest challenge? Uh, I think that it will continue to be uh, how we fund local government, how we continue to be able to um, have some uh, decision-making authority uh, vested in local government. I think that's uh, it. I think it. I think the, the questions need to be asked, and the debate needs to happen as to are we structurally set up the right way and are we right sized and you know it was about 25 years ago maybe 30 years ago that uh, John McClowry and uh, Frank Bryan put out their Shires proposal the Vermont papers um, and maybe we should be looking at 50 municipalities across the state I'm not saying that that's the way to go but I think we need to ask the question I think we need to really experiment with this stuff I think we need to really research it and to say whether 21st century Vermont town government is being provided through the most effective way right now. Hmm. Sort of like a con- like the way they want to consolidate schools? Well, you know, I mean, we, we hear that schools are really the heart and soul of our communities. And, you know, one, one of the things that I realized over time is that the, the whole definition of community, I think, is evolving. And, uh, you know, I live in Northfield. I was in Roxbury first. I was on the volunteer fire department. I worked in Montpelier for 12 hours a day, and how much help was I going to be in serving my my home community of Roxbury being on the volunteer fire department? So I think we really need to make sure that our communities line up with our governmental structures, and I think we really are, are, are living now as uh, we are all commuting um, far distances to look at that idea of community and see whether we should be lining up our governmental structures to match those. Mm-hmm. Who's going to be taking over for you? Her name is Maura Carroll. She's um, actually worked over in the New Hampshire Municipal Association for about 25 years. She uh, was a former legislator over in, uh, in Concord and was a vice mayor over in, in Concord. So she's done the legislative issues. Um, they've had an a, a insurance initiative, something similar to ours. And so I think that it's in good shape that she's coming over here and we'll be able to step in. New Hampshire government most of most of our towns were chartered by governor wentworth out of new hampshire so uh, there's a lot of commonality of interest there and she's a really quality person but don't you have to sort of deprogram her a little bit on the new hampshire thing well I, i've told people that if there's a legislature more squirrely than ours here in vermont it would be the new hampshire legislature so it might be a a breath of fresh air for her to be able to deal with our legislature over here yeah, there's some differences. There's no question, but they've they've got town meetings just like we do. They've got elected uh, people that are doing listing and uh, select boards and planning commissions. So, I think you know, again, given <coughs> excuse me, given that uh, we got somebody from from out of state, we couldn't have done better getting uh, more to come in here and take take my place. In the words of Frank Sinatra, regrets you must have a few. So name me one. I'm sorry, I missed that one. Um, regrets. Regrets. I have a few. Well, I mean, it's like I said, I, I almost feel like I've been fighting a rear guard action here for, for 37 years for something I feel very strongly about. And I hope there's a future, really, for for local government. I wish I could say that Vermont local government it was in a better place um, 37 years later. But uh, I think the jury's out on that. Is it frustrating then you look back and you say that basically you were playing goalie and not, you know, forward? Yeah, and, and I have boards of directors all the time that wants us to be, you know, very proactive and very positive and, and making big changes. And it always seems like every legislative session we end up trying to fight some initiative that's coming down that would really alter our ability to be able to serve our people the way we want to serve them. Did you enjoy being in that building? 
Uh, I will enjoy not being in the building. Uh, there were times, um, there were great people to work with. Um, they have different interests than, than I did and uh, that our members do uh, in some cases. But one thing you'll learn is that there's nobody always against you. That on <laughs> some issue, there's somebody, that, that person that uh, you argue with all day is going to come out uh, and be your biggest supporter on some other issue. They're a, a great bunch of people, and uh, it's frustrating certainly every year and every year I'm glad to see them adjourn. Don't burn bridges, the message. Absolutely. Thanks for coming in. Good Thank luck. you, Mark. Steve Jeffrey, the outgoing executive director of the Vermont League of Cities and Towns. I asked him before the show. He doesn't have any big, huge plans. So uh, we'll, we'll get him back when uh, he figures all, all out. We're going to take a break here for news. We'll be back for hour number two. Love to hear from you. 244-1777 is our local number. Toll free, you can reach us at 877-291-8255. We'll kick off hour number two with our White House crew. Keep your dial right here. This is FM 96.1 WDEV Warren, broadcasting from the top of Sugarbush and AM 550 WDEV. Waterbury Montpelier News is next. AP 